Hello, welcome to the David Eagle Podcast. I get knocked down, but I A song globally ubiquitous. Everyone knows the song, but comparatively so few people know much about the band that created it. The band, of course, was Chumbawamba, or Chumbawamba, if you prefer. We'll talk about that shortly. A band that has been described as a one-hit wonder, but nothing could be further from the truth. For a start, as well as tub-thumping, they did have other top 40 hits, of course, including Amnesia, and, of course, their World Cup 98 song, Top of the World. But Chumbawamba were a band for 30 years. They were a band for 15 years before tub-thumping was released in 1990. And they went on to be a band for a subsequent 15 years. And their music spans all sorts of genres. Punk, rock, pop, rap, dance, electronic, dealing a lot in samples. And then the complete opposite of that, stripping it all back and performing acoustic and unaccompanied folk music. And they're massively multifaceted when it comes to the subject matters that they address in their songs. They've got a real strong, powerful political voice, telling stories of real people, singing songs of justice, equality, rebellion. But also they have such a, an amazing sense of fun about them as well and they've done things throughout their career to mock themselves and everything on everyone around them. On this week's podcast we chat to Boff Wally who was there from the beginning right the way through to the end of Chumbawamba. I know Boff because being in a folk band, the young'uns, we've met him a few times doing various music projects with him and also Neil from Chumbawamba produces our albums and does our live sound and Chumbawamba are one of my favourite bands of all time and when Neil was on tour with us or whenever we saw Boff I sort of told myself I really needed to ration myself to just maybe slipping in a question now and again rather than being all nerdy and geeky and, and asking loads of questions. But the good thing about doing a podcast is you sort of have an excuse to ask all of those questions and be a bit nerdy and geeky. So this is my conversation with Boff. We spoke for over an hour and essentially I've just put the entire thing in. I'm also peppering the conversation with some audio examples as well, which hopefully will bring you even further into that world. I think that'll do as an introduction. I'm going to press play on my conversation with Boff Wally. How did things start for you musically? Where does your journey begin pre-Chumbawamba? I was brought up as a Mormon. Music was, even before punk and everything, music was was my kind of salvation, really. I latched onto the Beatles and then Bonzo Dog Band and then Frank Zappa and lots of theatrically comedy stuff. I loved Monty Python. I, I, I wanted to be in some kind of comedy troupe type thing. Are you saying that the music thing was a slight rebellion or a, against the Mormon upbringing? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. It was, what was happening is, is that, is that that uh, a lot of the comedy at that time, including stuff like Bonzo Dog Band and Frank Zappa, was was that it wasn't so much saying, "Ah, oh, you know, um, revolutionary, the world is wrong. Let's let's attack the world." It was saying, "Your parents have got it wrong, and society's yeah. wrong, and and let's not be normal. Normality is boring." You know, Python mm. were really good at that, kind <laughs> of sending up that kind of everyday, average city normality, and so I was latching onto that like mad. And then eventually mm. punk came along and it kind of said, hey, do you know what? All these ideas that you've got, you can do them with music as well. And you don't have to sit in your bedroom for three years to learn how to play a guitar. And I thought, well, that's the one for me, the kind of the quick way in. So I, I took the quick way in. We formed a band. We had a name for a band and then we just got asked to play a gig even before we'd met to decide who was going to play an instrument. Wow. Do you remember and what did you play? Presumably not self-composed stuff, bearing in mind you'd never practised before. Everything we played was self-composed. We had about two really? weeks. The, the first gig we ever did, we just sat around in, in Dambert's living room. Let's do a, a bed gig where Gilly can't play any instruments or sing, so he can bring a mattress and he, he'll just sleep on all the way through the gig on Hi. stage. And we'll all wear pyjamas <laughs> and we'll just sing songs about going to bed and about being asleep. 
and we'll, right. we'll kind of make some of them up and we'll write some of them and yeah goodness do you remember any of them no i really don't <laughs> <laughs> there's no extant recordings of uh, of this there are some recordings of of that first band Cheap Peach banana after we'd been together for about a year yeah and yeah. obviously we still couldn't play our instruments i don't like girls i don't like beer And I put my trunks on and run into the sea And all the girls are looking at me But I don't like girls I don't like girls, I don't like me It was just really good fun, and we were experimenting and trying things out and getting yeah. involved in things. So, so what, you would have been about 17 at this Yeah, point. that kind of thing, yeah. I left school a year earlier than A-level year type thing and yeah. went to college in Maidstone in Kent, thinking that it was really close to London and that I'd be able to go to loads of, you know, Adam and the Ants gigs and stuff. And it wasn't that close at all, so I left after three months. So Dambert was in the band at this point? Yes, he was, yeah. I'll tell you how I first met Dambert. I was at school... And somebody in a year younger than me said, oh, you've got to come and meet this this lad. Because what happened then is if you got into punk rock pretty early on, it was your duty to go and meet other punks because there were yeah. maybe six or seven in each school across Burnley. And so he said, oh, there's this other lad who's who's into punk. So we, went, we actually went specifically to meet him on a street corner near where yeah. I lived outside this bakery. And there was this lad there and he was quite short with kind of black fuzzy hair, but he, he had a, a homemade straight jacket on. So he couldn't <laughs> move his arms and he was all strapped in. And he was just standing there waiting to meet us. And he'd got his mum to help make it and to sew him into it with these buckles. And I just thought, that is fantastic. What, what, a, what a guy. That's superb. That's great, because that's it's still, oh, I don't know what he's like now, but that was very much sort of the idea that you got in, certainly like 90s, Chumba Wumba. Of, you know, oh, he's that was still just like thing, that. You know. He's absolutely still like that. When did Chumba sort of start then? When did yeah? How did that all sort of come about? Well, we'd, we'd stopped doing Chumba's Banana then, and in between we had about a year where I moved to Leeds to try, I went to college in Leeds as well, but that only lasted a year, so we'd, I dropped out. But in the meantime, we'd, we'd kind of got this idea together, let's do a, a band, take it a bit more seriously, and we went off to Paris to consecutive summers busking we were busking like our own songs but also stuff by the clash and the undertones and buscocks and everything in the main square in paris for about two or three months each year and that's basically when we thought right we can do this we've learned to play a bit and we know what we're doing now let's do a proper band so we got back from paris the second year met up with dunst in leeds mm. and by that time we i'd got really into crass and we all had a bit but it was yeah. this thing of whoa you can do do all that kind of malarkey that we're involved in and make it have a point have something yeah. to say and I went to see Crass and I kind of went on tour with him a bit watching him in different gigs and I became aware that even though most of the audience were you know loving it and jumping up and down going crazy and everything I would kind of I was kind of stood at the back thinking this is brilliant it's theatre mm. they've obviously come from some kind of older you know activist theater protest background there was lots of art references in there mm. i kind of thought this is great we can throw this into the mix this kind of thing of using thinking about how you dress and what you wear and what you look like as well as what the music's doing and all that sort of thing so yeah. it all went in there and then so 
that's how Chumbawamba started. Why the name? We were doing odd bits of jobs at the, um, this would be like 1982, at the um, the local kind of unemployed centre down in Leeds, in Leeds City Centre. And we were going in there and we learned how to screen print and things like that. And we got what our first, our first gig. We've got a gig. We'd better think of a name. In the act of cutting out letters for these screen prints, we had this idea that each poster wouldn't be a poster. We'd do three posters with three flying ducks on them and put the posters up in threes. We were never good at making life easy for ourselves. <laughs> so uh, we were cutting out the letters for this name. And it honestly just came out of, we were just like, Chumba, Chum, Chum something, Chumba Whaling. Yeah, Chumba Whaling. That's, and Midge wrote it on his drum. And then we were cutting these letters out. No, it doesn't sound very good. Let's do Chumba Wamba. Chumba Wamba. Yeah, that sounds all right. Let's do that. So this is interesting because obviously it's spelt Chumbawamba, but it's one of those things that everyone says Chumbawamba, so it seems a bit sort of contrarian yeah. sort of say Chumbawamba, really. But is that, how do you, when you, you know, how would, how did you introduce yourselves? I'm trying to think, would it be Chumbawamba? Do you know what? Well, I, I, it never occurred to us that, yeah. that, it would, that it would make a lot more sense being Chumbawamba. <laughs> yeah. I well, don't people, think it and it's weird anyway. how people went for that. How yeah. did, did that happen pre tub thumping and that kind of thing, or was that a thing that happened because the radio just sent Ah oh, Chumbawamba? Oh yeah, that, that, no, that happened right from the beginning. We, okay. we once got a gig in Manchester. We went over from Leeds to Manchester to the, to play this club, and they, it was a, a really heavily kind of you know um, Caribbean reggae club. And they yeah. booked us because they thought we were a reggae band because they saw the name and thought, oh, All right, right. Yeah, obviously a reggae band. <laughs> so we got there, we're like, oh, no, what are we going to do with this? But yeah, the, the name mix-up has always been... You know, the first thing as, as well that we thought was that um, we want a name that doesn't give you an idea what the music is mm. because... All our kind of peers were called things like victims, child, and society's rejects and yeah. anthrax and stuff like that. And so we thought, let's think of something that's completely weird and benign and doesn't hey, that's so good because and the fact that you've like stemmed so many genres and done so many different types of music over the like over the like thirty year career in some ways mm. is absolutely perfect because it might have it might have held you back a little bit if you had got something you know you might have not you know had a number two single or whatever if if you'd have been yeah. you know victim's child or whatever, <laughs> yeah you know? yeah because yeah. we were, for a while we set up a record label and put out records by other people and one of the bands was called Thatcher on Acid a great band <laughs> but I just remember thinking that absolutely ties you down to this time what happens when she goes which she obviously inevitably did because I'd always wanted to go to art college and I didn't quite make it but um, the history of art as a big player in the British music scene I was fascinated by you know everything from from John Lennon you know the Rolling Stones the Who there was this great influence on popular culture coming out of the art schools mm. and so I, I loved all that and so one of the things that we did we, we'd be like well, this has got to be kind of an art project as well. It can't just be about going, oh, yeah, we ate Margaret Thatcher. Let's rant mm. about the Falklands War. It's like, yeah, but how do we do that and, and give it a twist and basically not sound like any, anybody else doing it? One of the things we did at one of the very first meetings was if we ever put out cassettes or singles or anything, let's make sure that the, the way that you write the word Chumbawamba is different every time. Use a different typeface, a different font, because mm. then people can't kind of put it on a badge or on the back of their leather jackets. Right. So you can't and, be branded or a logo. Yeah. 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 We were really against Modified. that thing of get get a brand and, and stick to it. We were really against it. Yeah. No, let's make it difficult for people. So when did the band sort of complete its formation then? When did like Alice and Jude get involved? The kind of original proper version, which was with Dunce and Alice and Lou and, and everyone, was about I'd say about eighty four when Harry came up from Barnsley. 
Yeah. And he was 15 and he'd, he'd heard some of the music we were doing and he'd come up and he was into crass and everything. And he, he, he kind of knocked on the door and said, you know, I'm from Barnsley. I'm in this band called Passion Killers. And, you know, I just came up to visit. So he came and stayed. And then and then he was like, OK, I, I better go now because it was getting dark. He said, are there any bus shelters around here where I could like sleep in? We're like, what? You're 15. <laughs> of course you can stay here. And then and he never left. And, <laughs> and w- literally within about a week, we discovered he was like, an incredible drummer, a really good drummer. Yeah. So we just thought, right, okay, this now, now we, now we're rocking. And that lineup lasted until I don't know, early 1990s, more or less. Give and take, you know, the odd person disappearing or coming back, yeah. like that. Working for EMI, supplying news because people die from the money they make, from the webs they make. Through defence contracts with the MOD, supplying weapons for the UKC to fight its wars, to uphold its laws, working in security, close circuit TV, and if you try to move, EMI is watching you. Let's keep us all content. They provide the entertainment from 10 TV to the ABC. Through HMP, they'll hard sell soft on videotapes, they'll make a profit, alterate, they'll hide Frankie's and make a bomb. The war machines are number one. And Jude and Neil came along, kind of got involved in the early 90s. And that yeah. cemented that version of it. And and it's funny because Jude, even to the end when Jude had been in the band for like 15 years, she still thought of herself as like a newcomer. <laughs> I think mean, we should almost go back to Thatcher slightly while, my, while it's fresh in my mind because you yeah. the idea behind the Thatcher album that would only be sent out after Thatcher's death. So on the day yeah. of Thatcher's death, you would release this. Yeah. So this is quite a crazy project because this is, you'd already stopped being a band at this point as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think we had. We recorded that thing thinking that she's about to go. It's going to be about a year and then yeah. she'll be gone. And so we basically said, if you send us, I think it was like, you know, like five quid, then yeah. then we'll send it you on the day that she dies. And, and then we just sat on it and she stuck around for several more years. <laughs> well, yeah, so when did you record it then? I honestly can't remember. But I really yeah, it was, it was like quite a few years before. And it this was, idea yeah. of And <laughs> that must be quite strange, having an album that the release date is determined by the death of someone. <laughs> yeah. The ladies not for turning. Baroness Thatcher has died. It is not merely stunned. It has ceased to be, expired, and gone to meet its maker. Just rejoice at that news. They could give everyone in Scotland a shovel, and we would dig a hole so deep that we could (laughs) hand it over to Satan personally. Not any better, the devil you know, waiting for Margaret to go. Not any better, the devil you know Waiting for Margaret to go Oh, waiting for Margaret to go we always had this this thing, which, you know, even from the 1980s, where if you have an idea in the pub at yeah. night when you've had a couple of drinks and then in the morning you kind of think, well, that was a daft idea, that was stupid. But often what we'd do is we'd, the next day we'd go, hey, do you know what? That was That's a really good idea. Let's do it. Yeah. Even if it was absurd. And, you know, we once, I remember actually being in a pub in Armley in Leeds where someone said, hey, have you heard that Napalm Death uh, are recording an album and it, it's got a hundred tracks on it? We were like, wow, that's amazing. You know, a double album, it's a hundred tracks. And we said, wouldn't it be funny if we really quickly recorded an album that had 101 on it? <laughs> and we were like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. And we, 
And then someone said, oh, they, we should do it all about the same subject. So it's not just like any old 101 songs. And we oh. thought, oh, it could be about sport because nobody, no one sings about sport enough, you know, in, in kind of pop culture. And then the next day we said, hey, what about that idea of 101 songs about sport? And within yeah. about two months, we'd recorded it and put it out. I mean, I think you maybe missed a trick slightly because they're obviously a death metal or thrash metal or whatever you'd have it yeah. down as. So if you're going to do 101 songs, I think you, should, you could have called the album 101 Damnations. <laughs> of course we could yeah we did it under the name sportkestra because right. we invited loads of our friends to kind of sing on it and play on it so it's people like john langford from mecons and john robb i think from member all sorts of people from different bands and The brilliant thing of writing it about sport yeah. is just great because it's kind of, you wouldn't imagine, it's completely anathema to the thing that Napalm Death would be singing about, the idea of, oh, yeah, playing a game of Absolutely. football. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? We Funnily enough, several years later, we, 1989, we, we were on tour in Germany and we met up with Napalm Death. And at yeah. that time, we used to play a lot of football, you know, in the downtime before gigs, around sound checks and stuff. We met them on their bus and they were, uh, they had this incredible kind of, you know, a big posh touring bus, but it was, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying this because it was part of their their shtick, but it was mm. incredibly filthy and smelly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it was all male and it was like, whoa. And they, you know, they looked like scary. Yeah. And th- we, we said, oh, you know, we, we're going for a game of football. And they said, oh yeah, we, you know, we play a bit of football. And we said, oh, do you want to, should we have a match? And they said, yeah. We said, okay, how about tomorrow morning after the gig tonight? We'll meet up tomorrow and have a game of football. And they were like, okay, yeah. yeah. And we suggested, you know, probably 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And like, oh, you know, make it two o'clock and we'll, <laughs> we'll get there. And we turned up for this game of football. And there were quite a few people there because we told the, the gig, the audience that night. So quite a few people turned up to watch us play this six or seven aside game. Wow. And Napalm Death turned up. I think only about three of the band could play because right. they were wrecked. And they all yeah. had cans of beer with them. They walked on with cans of beer and just with their normal stage clothes and started playing this game of football against us. And it was really unfair because we were all <laughs> fit and and kind of, you know, ridiculously like competitive. We've got to beat Nippon Death. I mean, you know what would be an insult if you if you scored 101 nil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been really good. At this point, you're releasing albums, you're releasing things on cassette. How mm. is the message of the band's getting out there because this is pre-97. This is before everybody knows who you are, like globally. So at this point, like in the late 80s or whatever, how did you find you were getting your message out and how like how strong was your fan base and that? Because this is also pre-internet as well, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We started building up an audience of people who kind of got what we were doing and they even, you know, we'd play these kind of squat gigs and benefit gigs and sometimes we there would literally be sort of eight or nine noise bands and us mm. in the middle somewhere. So you knew that people were going away thinking, oh, that was a great night. What was that weird shit going on in the middle where they, they kind of all got dressed up and wore weird costumes and, and did theatre stuff. And we knew that that was interesting and it kind of worked. And so we picked up an audience and then 1985, 86, we recorded our first single and we, we took it to a, a distributor and said, right, we've recorded this this single and uh, we want to put it out. Uh, we, yeah. we want you to distribute it. And they said, oh, well, we'll have a listen, you know, and blah, blah. And, and we said, you know, we just want you to know that we really believe in it and we're going to put it out even if you don't distribute it. And so they were kind of, they liked our confidence and they said, okay, yeah, great, we'll put it out. And within about two weeks of it coming out, John Peel played it. 
And yeah. that that was on honestly in all the years, including tub thumping and you know being on whatever some American TV shows or whatever. Mm. John Peel playing it that first time was was kind of the point where I thought this this is it. it doesn't get any better. This is brilliant because I'd grown up listening to John Peel yeah. and it meant so much to all of us. And then he played it again and then he played it again and he ended up playing it like six, seven times. Yeah. And it got in, in it was like really high up in his John Peel's what, festive 50. What was he playing then? What was the song? It was called Revolution. It was weird because it had lots of different kind. as I think you might expect from Chumbers, it was it had lots of different kind of styles of music on it. It had little bits of harmony and bits of loosing and then some ranty bits and then some weird <laughs> quiet bits and a bit of sampling. And that, that was quite unusual at the time. At number six, and I was very pleased to see this do well, Chumbawamba. And that, that kind of set us off. That was the point where, you know, we, we were able to take our recordings to like distributors and say, right, we've got something else now. And they'd, they'd go, oh, yeah, great. We want yeah. But the, the John Peel thing, when he died, we weren't really a band. Yeah. So it's always that thing of like, oh, would John Peel have got a hold of our music or whatever? But as I say, he died by the time we were doing yeah. any songs or anything like that. But John, John, I have to say, John Peel would have loved Youngins. And I'll oh, tell you why. Well, because, I'll tell you why, because because he always had this kind of... People have this idea that he was just eclectic and he'd just play anything from any genre. Mm. But when he loved something, he loved it because it was making an effort to kind of break out of its genre slightly. So if Napalm Death did something that was like, you know, that had a four-part harmonies in it, he'd be all over it. Anything that was a bit new was breaking a bit of new ground. Yeah. And I think Youngens, I think, basically bringing the idea of that that beautiful kind of traditional, you know, a cappella thing, and which has been around, obviously, for centuries, and thinking, right, we're going to write our own songs and we're going to talk about stuff that's going on in in our area and talk about characters real characters with real life stories mm. it's it's interesting it's an it's an interesting thing and i think he'd love it and it, and he did he did play folk music he played a yeah, lot yeah yeah you've got this hallowed thing of eventually getting a peel session and i don't think it was the first one that you did this but bearing mm. in mind it's a massive thing for you mm. yeah. you decide to turn up and do there's a lot of black lace covers yeah, that was the first one. That was the, was first, the first one, yeah. So this is the hallowed thing. We're going to do a session on John Peel. Let's not mess it up. Oh, yeah. we could do Agadoo. Yeah. How does, how does that happen? <laughs> Ag- Agadoo, birdie song. Viva España. You know, partly that was because um, because we understood that Peel had a good sense of humour and that he would be expecting us to come on and do what everybody else did, which is his four new tracks from our new record or from an upcoming record. And so we just thought, how can we kind of puncture this expectation? Neil had been, um, we'd been working with Neil in the studio in Castleford at Woodlands. Yeah. And we the first thing that happened when we went into Woodlands, we were there recording our first single Got to know Neil. What I mean, what an amazing, not only an amazing, lovely bloke, but an incredible engineer, you know, an mm. incredible producer. In his kind of back cupboard where there were these like old amps and bits of tatty old guitars that had broken and stuff, there were these gold discs. So we looked at them, we were like, <laughs> what? why have you got a gold disc for Agadoo and Black Lace's Greatest Hits and <laughs> all this? And he said, oh yeah, you know, I produced them. And we were, we were like, get them up on the wall. He's like, no, I'm not. Don't even think about it. When he wasn't looking, we would sneak them up <laughs> on the wall and hang them. And then the next time we went in, they'd all be taken down again. And we just thought, let's kind of honour that northern working class, working men's club ethos. You know, yeah. let's not be ashamed of it. Let's kind of go, look, of course it's rubbish, a lot of it, but <laughs> it's catchy rubbish. And it's yeah. brilliant and, and, and what it what it's doing and what it was for in terms of like communities and all that. Let's let's do that. And, jo- you know, 
to his credit, John Peel loved it and played it again. On the second time he played it, he gave a little introductory thing saying, um, saying, you know, I've had some letters of objecting to me playing this, <laughs> but I, I really like it, so I'm going to play it all again. And he did do, which is great. You got a second chance, and this time you did it. I think you did it. You did a proper session. <laughs> yeah, we did it a lot more straight that way. That way. And to be honest, I kind of regret that because I think, right? Yeah, of course, that's the one that I wouldn't even remember what the songs were. Yeah. At least with the first one, you think we made an effort. And <laughs> have your paths crossed with Black Lace then? Yeah, just briefly after tub thumping, when everyone just kind of expected us to just do lots more tub thumpings in a row and try and just to repeat the same formula, we did the next single we did was "She's Got All the Friends That Money Can Buy." So what we did is we said, because obviously we made some money off tub thumping, so we were like, right, we're going to pay Black Lace. <laughs> to come in and do their own version of it for the for the CD, which they did, and it's brilliant. It's really good. It's got this lovely bit where they put in where there's a line which says, um, "And everyone worth knowing is kissing her behind," and they sang, "Everyone worth knowing is kissing her behind, kissing her what?" <laughs> and I just thought that is that is real black lace. Black That's lace. what we wanted in there. Yeah. And both her faces so easy on. Because round about that time, we had the idea to do the, the folk album, English Rebel Songs. That, again, was us sitting down. What can we do that's not what everyone would expect? And, and that's amazing, because that's full-on unaccompanied singing. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. by then, we'd got really into folk music, and obviously it's pre-internet and everything. So we'd go to record libraries and get these old albums, vinyl albums by people like, you know, Martin Carthy and Dick Gock and... Yeah. And just discover this whole new world. And then we thought, you know, there's lots of Irish rebel songs and rebel songs from all over the world, but there's hardly any English ones. Mm. Let's try and find the English ones. And a lot of that, we we went to the music libraries, looking at sheet music for old collected folk ballads. And some of them, we weren't, you know, we weren't quite sure if the tunes were right because, we, you know, we're not collectors or anything like that. So we just put it out thinking that none of our audience is going to like this. That was our third or fourth album, and it became the by far the most popular one in Germany of all places. Mm. They really picked up on it and they loved it. And we'd go over there and play concerts and they'd be shouting out for, you know, um, Charty's song. <laughs> wow. Like, like, wow, this is great. So that kind of embedded that folk thing into everything we did after that. Speak with one voice, we march, we rest and march again upon the years. Sons of our sons are listening to hear the Chartist cheers. Oh, to hear the Chartist cheers. 
this is the sampling thing, which is yeah. absolutely fascinating as well. Yeah. And it's again, there's like stories like, is it Jesus H. Christ that on the yeah. uh, the day of release, it was pulled because you'd sampled like Kylie Minogue or something and you hadn't got... We didn't get as far as the day of release because we... Right. We, we basically thought, let's do an album that's it's all based on other people's songs. Because we'd already been sampling for a while then. And we knew that, you know, it's really difficult. But said instead of sampling it, obviously, when we have to clear all the samples, we'll just sing our own versions as samples and put them in. So we did that. And every track was called the name of whichever bit of a sample was in there. So, for instance, there was a song called Stairway to Heaven, which had hardly any of the Stairway to Heaven in it. It was mainly our song, but we sang the line A Stairway to Heaven, thinking that would get round the this kind of sampling laws, copyright laws, that we'd just apply for permission saying, we're singing it, because you're you're allowed to go and sing other people's songs. Yeah, yeah. And the record company at the time, which was Southern, who were distributing it, they said, we can't touch this with a barge pole. And they started getting letters back from people who owned the copyrights. And they were they were not only saying no, they were saying, yeah, we want 100% of the you know proceedings from this. And if you added it all together, the album, it came to like about 750% of the profits had to right. go to these people. So we basically redid the album as and called it Shh and made it all about censorship instead. But in the meantime, we re- released the original album, Jesus H. Christ, yeah. without saying it was us. And we just got it pressed ourselves and just put it out and sold it. And of course, wow. nobody got in touch and objected because it was, as our old manager used to say, it's under the radar. Where did the idea of sampling come from? Where did the idea of like, oh yeah, we're going to sample something and who is it who is doing all of the trickery? Because there's like this proper sampling and scratching and stuff. It's not just like, yeah. oh yeah, we'll just put a bit of spoken word over the top. You know? Yeah, no, no, it was... Because originally what we did is we, we used to have double cassette recorders and you'd record something on one cassette recorder from the other by pressing the play and record really quickly and yeah. then stopping. So you'd have this sample. Then you'd put that in the other side and drop it into your track somehow if you had a four-track recorder. And you'd have yeah. to keep pressing play at the right time. We did a song just after the minor strike, which was all Margaret Thatcher's speeches cut up and sampled them. It was all just from a cassette, pushing play and everything. And then we went to studio, the Neil's studio, 1988, 1989, and he said, oh, I've got this box. It's a sampler. It's got a three-second memory. Mm. And you hit a button and it replays anything. This was incredible technology. So we, we said, oh, so, so for instance, we can sample the snare drum and make it a dog bark every time. And he said, yeah. So we, we got his dog to bark and recorded it and then hit the button manually. Harry hit the button every time there was a snare beat. And that was our introduction to sampling. And we thought, <clears throat> yeah, this is, this is great. This is the way to go. And Harry, just, Harry and Neil together just really took on that whole project of learning digital technology. Harry got an Apple Mac and sat down with his, he made this chart of how to turn sounds into other sounds and what it all meant, what, you know, all the ch- ins and outs and MIDI and all that sort of thing. And he just sat down and spent several months just learning it from scratch. My 
you were out for a run last night. Uh, I was, my first trip to the pub since October was last night. Wow. So I woke up this morning with a rather big hangover. So I didn't cobble together the game that I was thinking of doing, which is maybe just as well, because I feel we've got so much to talk about that if I'd have introduced <laughs> yeah. a, a quiz element to it. Yeah. But yeah. I did think of something of like, you've got all of these samples. Can you remember where the, the samples come from? <laughs> and if you got it, if you got it right, it, I would play, I'm, I'm a winner, baby. And if you got it wrong, I would play, I can't remember. You know, <laughs> be the, but, I like it. It's good. But I wonder if you can remember just some of the times mm. where you thought, yeah, we definitely want to sample this and this is how we did it and how it just sort of came about. And Often what we'd do is we'd, we'd have a song and we'd, you know, say the song was about a particular thing. So Alice wrote some lyrics for this song, which was about, um, I think it was about Zora Neale Hurston. I can't remember. It's about um, a story in, in America, in this kind of deep South America, where it was about this black woman got convicted and taken to court for crossing the road when it when the pedestrian light was on red. And her defence was, well, I've been to these lights loads and loads of times and I've seen all the white folk crossing when it's on green. So I, th I immediately thought, oh, well, obviously I'm not allowed. I have to wait till it goes red. Right. And so, and it's a kind of really interesting story to, yeah, to tell that story about slavery and prejudice and everything. But we'll, it's, it was about cars. And it had mm. a horn, peeping horn in it and all that sort of thing and cars stopping. And we said, um, let's find a sample, but let's find it from some songs that are about cars. So we find uh, Adam and the Ants' Car Trouble. We said, there must be something in this song that's, that we can fit in there. And it's just this little bit where he's going, um, he sings, um, Have you ever had to push, push, push? Really beautifully. And we're like, yeah, let's put that in. Push, push, push. So we did that all the time. We tried to look for some a relevant sample, if that makes sense, and just drop it in. And most people wouldn't know what it was anyway. How did the thing with Negative Land come off? So for those people who don't know, they're a band who, my goodness, I don't know, it's sort of a satirical American comedy art project, I suppose, that's uh, laced with samples and creates yeah. a sort of a, a story, I suppose, with samples. Well, a few of us had been listening to them from like early on when they first started doing that stuff. And it was just because it was exciting. And they were kind of, they were almost um, goading the, the big companies or the big bands on to sue them. And uh, eventually U2 took them to court. And that's right, because... Yeah. They released, didn't they, a version of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, which I yeah. think was on the day that you 2 released I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Yeah. And it was a sort of a piss take of that. It's like, well, I've searched high and low. I've, I've <laughs> yeah, looked in all the drawers right. and I still haven't found yeah. what I'm looking for. And all yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And since they, they sampled them, then you 2 basically took them to court and they, they yeah. kind of directly appealed to the band. You know, they're basically saying, yeah, okay, well, if you're into, you know, free expression and, and the politics of communication and connection and you're cool and you're lefties and all that sort of thing, then stop your record company Taking, mm. taking us to court. We're a little band from wherever, you know, Seattle or something. And of course, you 2 didn't. They weren't able to do that. So that was a long running thing. So then they released a series of records, which were called the letter U and the numeral 2, which were all about the court case. 
Yeah. It was brilliant, brilliant stuff. And so we'd been in contact with them. And when we played in America, we met up with them, just loved what they were doing. And so then by the time it got around to, to tub thumping, and we were in that position of being able to stop people using samples of what we'd done, because loads of people wanted to sample tub thumping. But we went to Negative Land and said, why don't you just take what we've done and we'll make sure the record publishers or whoever it is that, that we give them permission and you can just do whatever you want with it for free. So they just took it and used it and called it ABCs of Anarchism, and it, which is kind of partly critical of what we'd done with tub thumping but also they were able to use all the samples from it and we we loved it we thought this is great i, I loved yeah. i loved it when people criticized us i, I kind of feel that that should be encouraged more in popular culture embracing right. criticism rather than running away from it and well i think that's great fighting. because it could be a thing where your eagles went in in 97 are, are, are rampant because of this but it seems actually yeah. not to be the case so i feel we, we definitely need to now yeah. get to the point where it's 96 97 yeah. how on earth did i don't understand how you got from you've got your peel session but that hmm. doesn't mean number two single or anything or get and do oh. Radio 1 Roadshow or whatever and do all of these things so how yeah. on earth did you become ubiquitous well we'd been with uh, One Little Indian Records who were brilliant they were great we'd put a couple of albums out with them but then they kind of started getting cold feet and wondering what we were recording next and kept dragging time out and we were like well we've, we're recording an album and they said mm, can we listen to the demos and we never let record companies listen to demos we always just went here's the finished mm. thing here's the artwork and it's your job to put it out kind of thing you know without being snotty and snotty yeah, yeah. they said no we really would like to hear something later we found out that what they were actually trying to do because they had Bjork and the Shaman and stuff they were trying to sell the whole company to an American record company and so they were delaying every everybody's release so that they could wait to see if they could sell everything so they listened to the demo i think there were four songs and the first one was tub thumping and derek the owner who's a lovely lovely bloke he listened to it and he sent us a letter back saying yeah we're not really sure about this and we don't think the tracks are strong enough mm. uh, what about if you work with outside producers and we were really against it because we'd never done that and when you sent them tub thumping was it tub thumping in the current guise that everyone knows it now it, it was very very close to it yeah right. And it was the demo that other people heard and said, ah, this song is different from all, all the other stuff. So we basically thought, right, well, let's just put it out ourselves or find somebody else to put it out. And in the meantime, we were really skint at that point. Nearly all the band had part-time jobs doing all, all manner of things. Jude was working in a catalogue shop packing blouses into mail order bags and Lou got a job as an extra doing stuff like uh, Emmerdale <laughs> she's sitting in the bar in Emmerdale in the background stuff like that and here we go with her, the anarchist punk ethos and there she yeah. is on Emmerdale it's brilliant. absolutely <laughs> and and we'd no money and we so we, we walked away from on one little indian and said no we're not gonna re-record everything because we, we like it we think it's fine and in the meantime a couple of people just picked up on this cassette that we'd made of the demos and somebody sent it to uh somebody knew somebody who knew somebody else meredith brooks i don't even remember her this oh, yeah. canadian singer songwriter yeah she heard it from some friend of ours and took it to a record company in america and said hey have you heard this this song it was just on a cassette and they immediately got in touch with us and said, we want to work with you. And it was, wow. uh, I forgot what they were called, Republic Records. Anyway, so basically the ball started rolling. Yeah. And, and we thought, oh, people are interested in, in this. Thank goodness, because we were just about to put it out on our own. Yeah. EMI in Germany, somehow, I can't remember how, heard it. Germany EMI heard it and said, we really like this. Can we talk to you? And we were like, oh, God, no, we don't want to sign to EMI. Mm -hmm. Now this is there. <laughs> yeah. But they, they sent it to EMI UK, who rejected it immediately, said, no, we don't want to have anything to do with this. Right. 
So Germany EMI, having done all this research about their connection to Thorne Electronics and their connection to, um, you know, making weapons of destruction and making stuff that they were selling to the South African police for torture. And they got rid of all that quite a long time before. So we investigated what all their dealings and basically they were just a media, you know, record company. So we saw we, th- we had lots of meetings and thought, well, we should at least talk to them. And they basically just said, yeah, we're not part of that anymore. We're not part of the arms trade or anything like that. And we'll let you do exactly what you want. We'll give you a really, really good contract. It's completely watertight in terms of your uh, control of everything, including, you know, the cover, the yeah. words, the lyrics, anything that you do. And we'll give you £100,000 as well. And we thought, Okay, that sounds fair enough. (laughs) Because we just knew if we signed to them that it would just give us a lot of opportunity to give us a kick up the arse. We'd have all these arguments to have, which would be really interesting. We'd get to go to places that we hadn't been able to go to and tour and and we'd be able to get involved in kind of the media and popular culture in a way that we hadn't been able to do. So we said, yeah, let's go for it. After much argument and discussion. And to be honest, we had maybe two years, three years tops before EMI UK had completely had enough of us being weird. And we just we just really enjoyed it. We felt like we never lost control. We made a lot of money and we gave a lot of money away to all sorts of projects. Well, okay, so when you talk about the money given away, there's a brilliant... What's the story of when you there was an advert and you agreed to let them have tub thumping? Well, we, we hit on this idea that obviously lots and lots of people wrote to us, can you help with this? And so we would help people out with, with various projects. But but we were aware that a lot of people didn't like what we'd done with tub thumping and that, yeah. um, you know, and that we shouldn't have signed to EMI and all that. So what we did is... We, we kind of came to this agreement that if some company got in touch wanting to use it that we didn't particularly like I mean obviously if it was if we really didn't like them so yeah. Nike were involved in uh, sweatshops heavily at the time probably still are they really were in, in the 1998 they offered us a million dollars to use the wow. song as their theme song for the um, for the World Cup in 98 and we turned it down we said no and they they sent us all sorts of messages and emails saying you can come and tour you're talking about sweatshops you can come and tour our factories in the far east and look at our working conditions if we can use the song and we still said no we just said no nike was too toxic but other ones that got in touch so we did lots of these We, we worked out a policy which is that if we're slightly unsure about the company then what we'll do is we'll find a kind of counter cultural or activist project that's nearby or that's connected or in the same city as this company and we'll say to them we're prepared to sell this song to them for an advert if you kind of give it the green light and we'll give you all the money wow. and invariably people said yes because even if they might have objected to what what we were doing in general with in terms of popular culture in that song when faced with the idea that they could have just get given 80,000 quid towards a yeah. strike fund or towards a, so we did it in America a few times in Detroit with a car company in Italy with a car company and gave money to pirate radio stations based on us saying we don't want to give this song to General Motors But we know there's a a long-running dispute with where you're supporting the workers at General Motors. We'll let them have the song, but we'll give you all the money. And they said, yeah, great. And it meant that we could use it as propaganda and say, so in in places like Italy or Germany or America, there would be these newspaper things saying a local pro-workers group gets given all the money from this advert. And so people start seeing that advert very differently. Mm. Which was great. Obviously, in the end, people would be a bit wary of offering to use the song on adverts. But it was it was just, you know, a lot of it was fun. It was like, let's yeah. play with this. Let's see what we can do with this. It, yeah, and I and I feel like it must just be so odd because you've you've been singing a songs about English rebel songs and you've been niche with a really strong but niche fan base and then mm. all of a sudden this happens and inevitably 
I imagine there's going to be a lot of people who turn against it and there's going to be people who, even if you you haven't actually sold out because you'd released that song or you were going to release the song regardless, it just so happened that someone yeah. picked it up. So you're not go, you're not pandering to it to something. But I bet oh. you there were so many people who felt like that was the case. And I particularly remember, I think it was the band Hyperloy. Was it? Were they yeah. called it Hyperloy? And, Hyperloy, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they wrote a song which essentially went, well, I'll sing it, I might get sued for this. Chambawamba, Chambawamba, you're shit! And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because they were angry that yeah. you stalled out. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah which is brilliant. I, I, <laughs> I love that. Because we played with, with Hyperloy a few times in many years previously to that. Yeah. I could see why they would do it. And and they, yeah. I think, it, what was it called? It was it, the the... the the EP was called Barefaced Hypocrisy Sells Records. Sells records, yeah. It was an EP. And so we offered to, you know, to be able to, to sell it through our website. And wow. uh, obviously they were like, no, get, get off, get no way. And we, so we put a link to it on our website saying, look, you can hear this, this record, which is all about saying how shit we are. Um, <laughs> And here's a link to it. And, you know, because we, I just think that's brilliant, all that sort of stuff. It's it's really important. It's an important part of kind of political discourse anyway, to have these arguments and debates. You know and... what would have been better if you'd have covered the song? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You released, released your own version. Yeah, yeah. So did they ever kind of get in touch and change their minds or say, oh, fair play or anything? Or No, no, no. No, definitely not. I, I feel like if if we it's Deke who's who's the main member of that band. I think he's the only remaining original member, and he's kind of motivates them to do things. And mm. I think that if I met him on the street or in the pub, it would be absolutely fine. I'd just say, yeah. look, you know, I totally understand why you you think it, and you probably wouldn't agree with any of my arguments talking about it. So well, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to know whether they whether he still feels that or whether he's kind of like, oh, actually, you know, because it's even if it's not true, you can kind of see why people have jumped to that conclusion. I don't know. Whether, yeah. Did you ever have dark moments of the soul where you sort of thought, oh, God, maybe we have? <laughs> no, never. No, oh, good. <laughs> Strangely good. enough. One of the reasons was because, because I said we came from this kind of background of situationist, dadaist art. So for me, the, the driving force wasn't necessarily the music or the politics. It was that mixed with how do we shake things up? What, what yeah. can we do that's that's going to surprise people? I've always loved that. It, it thrills me. It gives me a thrill to think that people don't quite get something or it takes time to get something or they'll walk away because it's not what they expected. I think, great, you know, rather than just everybody just going, yeah, yeah. I know. I, you know, all the journalists, especially British music paper journalists that always hated us, I always maintained that they will have never heard yeah. anything more than maybe one or three or four tracks. And that, mm. and that if they kind of actually listened to a lot of what we were doing, they might have a bit more understanding. That was the thing. I just wanted people to realise that we weren't just one simple thing that did the same thing over and over again. But yeah, and it do, I don't think, though, it matters how much you try and do that. You can't succeed in some ways. You can succeed with some people, but you're not going to succeed because proof is in the pudding that you are ubiquitous.
ubiquitous globally. And if you yeah. remember, even if people don't remember, no, they'd probably know the name Chumbawamba. But yeah. this idea that you are one-hit wonders, despite the yeah. fact that you've had a 30-year <laughs> career. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. can remember seeing you on some album of like compilation of like the best one-hit wonders or something. <laughs> yeah. um, it's so interesting to me because everyone will know that song and they may not even know the name Tub Thumping, but they'll know yeah. as soon as you go, I get knocked out. <clears throat> Everyone will know and it's played at sporting events and it when yeah. when football teams score and yeah. it must and, have, and you must have seen it used in some weird occasions where you go, bloody hell, what? Well the, the first the first time I heard it being played at, at Burnley Football Club, because I got I, I'm a season ticket holder there and I yeah. was in the toilet having a piss and pissing, it, pissing the night away. <laughs> it came over the tannoy before the game. And I just remember feeling so proud. Whilst I was stood there with all these... Whilst you were pissing. Thousands of other blokes all having you, a piss in this trough. Did you that. start singing Pissing Me Pint Away? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't turn to turn around to the next bloke and say, hey, li listen, that's that's me on that. No, but um, I felt really proud. And what the thing that I realised, it wasn't about Chumbawamba being a pop group and these people who had this, these ideas and these politics and these whatever. It was a, it was a kind of folk song. And it didn't matter that people didn't know who it was by. Yeah. It was just one of those songs that you hear, like at a wedding or something, that, that makes you feel uplifted and positive. And it, it really doesn't matter whether you know who did it or not. It's just, yeah. it, it's a people's song wherever you go in the world. And I, I really love that. I think it's great. So what was, from that time then, one of the more memorable things that you were invited to do? or Because I imagine now you've given up your part-time jobs and <laughs> Emmerdale's loss is yeah. music yeah, game. absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you must have been invited to do some very kind of commercial things in terms of like, I think you did the Radio 1 Roadshow or something yeah. like that. You know? We did, yeah. yeah, weirdly enough. Yeah, and we again, every time we had one of these offered, we, we had a big meeting deciding whether or not to do it. And yeah. every so often someone would say, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I think the Radio 1 Roadshow was a thing that we said, well, this is going to be really, really weird. Let's do it and see. Yeah. And we did it and thought, right, oh, that's okay. Yeah, we'll never do one of those again. They have these things in America around Christmas time. They have these things where they, the, the major radio stations in each city sponsor all-star lineups of, of concerts. And each band plays about maybe five songs. And we did it for like one Christmas. We did about six, seven of these. They were fascinating. They were brilliant to do. So we end up on bills with... Uh, and this so... Basically, if you say yes you'll do them the radio station just plays your song to death they want to be connected to this thing and they and they'll say hey our christmas show is coming and it's you know it'll be like a, um you, you, know, you sounded so yorkshire yeah our christmas show's coming down. <laughs> it's, it's coming get your flat caps on with... <laughs> and so on that little tour of these things we played with people like um like aerosmith and duran duran and moby and yeah all these these bands were all which were massive you know much bigger than we were and uh, you know beck people like this mm. and you'd go on and do your four or five songs and we did it one christmas and then thought okay we won't do that again even right. though it was it was really interesting to do but it felt a bit like being in a cattle market. So do you feel in some ways that the reason things started easing off and people started forgetting about you a little bit more was because of some of those decisions that you made and that you could have rode the, the wave for longer or or not? No, I think when we did Tub Thumping, I think that, that kind of set in stone for a lot of people that we'd become something else. And I think if they were ever going to learn that that we hadn't and that we were we were going to play with it and that we were going to do what we wanted to do, then they would maybe come back to us when yeah. we did, say, you know, ready-mades or something and started sampling English folk music and think, ah, this is actually nothing like Tub Thumping. 
So when you released Tub Thumper, Ooh. the actual album, did mm. you know at this point, did you have the, the songs already there so you knew what you were going to do? Or did you start thinking, bloody hell, what are we going to actually do now? Because people are gonna, there's going to be an expectation. I yeah, how did you approach that album? And how did it no. resonate with EMI? Did this try and say, no, no, you can't do that? They just, because we'd never worked with EMI in, in England because they were scared stiff of us. So like, for instance, we did a CD single about Tony Blair. A lovely kind of doo-wop thing yeah which was a kind of about uh having a, a failed love affair with somebody who promised mm. everything and then ran away kind of thing Tony. And we just gave them away free. We made like 5,000 or something and just gave them all away free because EMI in, in UK, we, we sent them a box and said, here, you know, it's nothing to do with EMI. We just thought we'd do these. They all shared them out in the office because we knew some of the people that worked in the office because they were really nice. Yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, we've shared them out in the office. But then the head of the company in Britain got wind of it and heard about it. And he, he's a personal friend of Tony Blair's. Oh. And he walked around the office confiscating them from people's desks right. and we just we, again we love this we just thought brilliant yeah. whereas EMI in Germany they were really lovely and they were great to us and they just said whatever you want to do and they'd, they'd say you know are we, basically are we going to get another tub thumping and we'd say no we, we're not really likely to, to do that kind of thing we're going to give you something quite different and they were really supportive and said yeah, yeah. okay fine because your other hits obviously you had Amnesia and then you had your World Cup yeah. on top of the world yeah I'm a taxi driver I'm a postal worker I'm an office cleaner, I'm a striking docker, I'm a ballet dancer, I'm a sapatista, I'm a pop singer, I'm a winner, I'm a winner. So I mean, I can see that some people would be uh, your hardcore fans who'd maybe disowned you at this point. Yeah. I almost can see this one for them as kind of like, oh, bloody hell, because now you're going, oh, lay, lay, yeah, I yeah, can almost true. see that more than Tub yeah. Thump in itself totally. in a weird way. Even yeah. though it's a great song. And and actually, what you that idea of it being a folk thing, I, I feel that you're, you're very right, and it's that anthemic type thing, because that's brilliant. Mm. It, it almost touches on something that no one else was sort of another angle of the World Cup. It's like... Oh, I'm a road sweeper or a refuge collector or whatever. I'm a winner. You know, we're all part of this together. So it was very much a song of the people. So yeah, yeah. again, I don't feel like it's a selling out thing, but it's just because you've got that chorus and you've got this thing. And when you released Tub Thumper, then did you sort of see people drift off at that point because they go, ah, it is not necessarily what I was expecting because it's yeah. not just 12 yeah, Tub Thumpers, Tub Thumpings in a row. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked both ways, basically. So so one way it worked was that people heard Tub Thumping on the radio, people who liked what we were doing for a long time and said, OK, that's it, I'm not dealing with them anymore, I don't like this, what they're doing. And it worked on the other way, which was that we sold, I mean, literally millions of records in America to 12, 13-year-olds who yeah. loved Tub Thumping. And they then, over the next year, two years, three years, wrote us letters, wrote us emails saying, you know, I got this because it was my 12th birthday and I, I used to jump up and down to it at parties. Yeah. And then I listened to the rest of the tracks and I've, I've bought everything, I've gone back through your catalogue and I've I've realised now what 
what you are and what kind of band you are. And it's ama- it's like if people got a Spice heard the Spice Girls single and then got an album <laughs> and realised that actually they were like social, you know, songs of social <laughs> conscience and yeah, equality, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> with samples of folk yeah. music in there. Yeah, and that that World Cup song came about because um, it'd be World Cup '98, wouldn't it? Yeah. In uh, yeah. in France, what we'd done is in '97 we went and toured in G- in Japan, and we met. I think it was the first year. It might I might be wrong, but I think it was was it the first year that Japan and uh, maybe South Korea had got to the World oh, Cup finals. Yeah. All the people we met there, we just talked to people and they were all really excited. They were like, you know, we, our teams are going to be in the World Cup for the first time and we're really excited. And and then we came back to England and obviously we've done a lot of stuff in Germany and they were really looking forward to the World Cup. And then somebody from the FA or whatever got in touch with us and said, do you want to try doing a World Cup song for England? And we said no, because that would be completely weird to all the people that we'd been and talked to who were really excited. We didn't want to do a kind of nationalist yeah. come on England but we did think it would be lovely to do a song that was like come on you know Everyone. ordinary people yeah. who love the World Cup and who love football and try and celebrate that instead and that's yeah. how that came along Was it just the one album with EMI? Um, two I think Okay I think it was two, yeah. And then you and then you move on and then you do something like ready-mades or whatever where you're sampling yeah. English folk songs. Had you yeah. got friends in the folk world at this point? Because I think you sample uh, Coo Boys and Simpson, I think. Is it doing Van Diemen's Land? And yeah, it start, is, yeah. yeah did we you sampled start making friends in the folk world? Did you start going to folk clubs and things? Or What had happened is that, is that I, remember, I remember me and Lou going to see Swan Arcade in yeah. the early 1980s, maybe 84, 85, in Holmforth. And being blown away by the fact that three voices could make that noise and could Mm. do something so interesting and powerful. And that kind of stuck with us, you know, in terms of the things we tried to do in terms of singing a cappella. And, you know, even with our kind of weedy voices, we thought it's it's such a great tradition and everything. And we, we used to go, go and see Coop Boys and Simpson through the 90s. We'd been listening to, uh, I don't remember, Moby did an album called Play. I do, it, yeah. It sampled lots of this kind of great old American... Gospel blues. stuff. And, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of Lomax field recordings. Yeah, loads of the Lomax stuff. And it's it's brilliant. The way he did it is, mm. is genius. And we thought, wouldn't it be good to do that that kind of thing, but all English traditional music? So yeah. we just thought, what a challenge to try and get that stuff. Sample that and use that as the, the kind of basic background for songs. So, yeah, we just started asking people. And the f- people in the folk world who we asked, you know, from, I don't know, Kate Rusby and Janet Russell and people like that, were just so lovely. They were like, yeah, of course you can use it. Yeah, we'd love you to use it. And then we'd, we'd say, okay, well, that's brilliant. We, you know, we're really thankful. Um, what kind of percentage split do you want on this song for us using your sample? And they, all of them were just like, what? What do you mean percentage split? You mean we actually get paid as well? We used, um, what's he called? David Graham, the, mm. the great guitarist and his version of Angie. We sampled it and got in it touch with him. was Jacob's Ladder, was it? That's right. Yeah. And, and used it and got in touch with him thinking, you know, he's such a kind of great old guitar god. I can imagine not getting a reply. And his manager replied, said, oh, he'd love it if you did that. So we used it. And, and obviously, you know, people got bits of money from the publishing when the record came out. And then we played in London about maybe two years later. Someone said, oh, there's someone here to see you. And it was David Graham. And he wasn't in great shape, but it was just so, it was such an honour to have him come and see us. And he, he came backstage and he, he said, uh, I just want to say thank you. And we were like... You know why? It's, you know, we, we're thanking you for using the thing. And he said, no, I want to say thank you for the, the publishing money that I got, meant that I could buy a new Hoover. <laughs> and I just thought, this is brilliant. This is what music should be about. Let's get down to the nitty gritty here. If we can help David Graham buy a new Hoover, then I, I feel like our work is done. On this Jacob's ladder. 
The first thing we did with the folk music was let's go back to playing the folk clubs and we got in touch with the Grove Folk Club in oh, yeah. Leeds and the Black Swan in York. York yeah. And we said, look, we, we're this band and we're known for doing this kind of music, but we want to do some a cappella singing and just playing folk stuff. Can we come and play the folk night? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And do you know what? That was It was so scary. Playing in front mm. of like 60 people in a folk club rather yeah. than playing to a thousand people in a, a student hall where you know everyone's just going to jump up and down and really enjoy yeah. themselves. Well, like the ro- the road show, for instance, I, I, remember, I think I've seen that clip. I mean, there's a thing on YouTube yeah. and you right. can hardly, you know, everyone's just blowing whistles and stuff and yeah. no one's really listening. They're all no. just, you're there almost just to see, oh, the band are there and they're playing and yeah. well, we're going to blow our whistles. And, yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah, it's uh, that something about getting, getting knocked down, let's jump yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So in a way, we kind of wanted to reclaim that idea of, look, we're, we're stripping it right back. and Yeah, whereas a folk way. music crowd really listen and, and you, they yeah. want to know the stories behind the songs. and Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And of course, we lost all the, the kind of rock and roll audience. We lost all that, which was fine because that's kind of what we, we were doing anyway. That's what we were yeah. intending to do. Why did the decision come for certain members to leave at this point? I remember having a meeting somewhere at a gig where we were thinking, it's, it's kind of getting a bit long in the tooth. What do people want to do? Let's have a talk about it. And mm. I remember Dunstan and Harry in particular kind of saying, well, I'd like a bit of time off. I'd like, yeah. so we all agreed to have, I think we said a, like a year or let's have a year off and everybody think what, what they want to do. And I said, and Jude and Neil and Lou basically all said, well, maybe we should, you know, we want to carry on. So let's just carry on doing the acoustic thing and Alice and Danbert were like yeah we're really happy with that because you know obviously that doesn't involve us but we're totally happy for you to do that and that just why do they um, think it didn't involve them Alice wanted Alice had already decided she wanted to be a writer so she was moving away from it anyway she always said I don't want to be jumping up and down on a stage when I was 40. And by then she was like 45. Dambert had had fallen in love and was having a relationship and had moved away and was thinking about moving to America. He always wanted to go and live in America. It all just worked out. To me, one of the best things about, in terms of memories of the whole 30 years, is being in in dressing rooms before a gig and kind of just singing together or going Mm -hmm. through songs together to try and work them out and thinking, this is great. This is what we're doing this for. It's kind of still a gang. And we're still doing this thing that we love doing. And it's very visceral singing on a company, a lot, you know, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As you may no doubt know. <laughs> You'd stopped gigging by the time we were doing a lot of the the festivals that you would have been doing. So yeah, yeah. our paths never really crossed yeah. uh, in that way. Do you know what? I would always have liked to do the Canadian festivals with you lot. Yeah, because they do those workshops, don't yeah, they? Yeah, um, I love that. Basically, it's a wonderful concept. It doesn't really happen over here where people from different musical backgrounds all just get together and it's like you're put on stage and you go, work something out. And sometimes yeah. it's just going down the line and swapping songs and going, oh, I've got a song about that. But, you know, you'll get some kind of like a, a rapper or a, a Native American group or a mm. Aboriginal group or, or a Mongolian, country singer. Mongolian yeah. throat singers. Mongolian throat singer, yeah. And we've done some great yeah. stuff and then people will just start joining in over the yeah, top and absolutely yeah it's yeah. brilliant because i think that i just imagine that you three are able to kind of yeah jump in and kind of just work your way into something and and find a way of adding something to it and i think that'd be that'd be brilliant yeah it's so, i mean that is a shame yeah that unfortunately we never, we never yeah we, we sort of maybe just two years or maybe even just a year just behind you almost there yeah <laughs> and then you decided you decided just too to, young 
you decided to bugger off. So what brought on that decision then? Because the folk music stuff was going so well and you released three or four albums yeah. with that kind of sound. I think that was the problem in a way. We did those three albums and thought, right, there's, there's a kind of sound here and we need to change. So right. we started having lots of meetings about what it could change to and about adding other people and becoming a different kind of band. And we couldn't quite work out what we could do next. Part of that discussion, it kind of morphed into, well, maybe this is like, it's approaching 30 years. Maybe we should just kind of stop and call it a day. And Lou was saying this, and I thought if Lou thinks that we should stop, then I don't want to be the last remaining original member. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought, no, I can't be that person. And so we said, well, I think this is, we'd been going 29 years, and we said, why don't we just make the last year really enjoyable, do yeah. do the gigs we want to do, have a brilliant farewell gig where we invite, you know... Oh, all the it's incredible, gigs, the gig. And just have a really good time with it and tour the places we wanted to tour and just enjoy it and then stop. And we, so we said, yeah, let's do that. That's what happened. Enough is enough is enough is enough. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Thanks. Thank you, very much. Thank you. Bye. Good night. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. Thank you very much. You've been brilliant. Thank you. Good night. Is there ever a chance of any kind of reform for a one-off or anything, do you think? I doubt it. I, th I always think there'll be people who will do things together, definitely. Like some of the stuff I've done recently, I, like with the choir, yes. uh, Jude and Lou have, have joined in and sang. You know, Neil sang on this last thing that we did. And when Dambert's over here, he, he tours his acoustic stuff. And often, like me and Neil or me and Harry will be part of his band. Yeah. That's always going to happen. But I think yeah. the idea of all getting together as, as Chumbawamba and doing something, uh, 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 as, as close to zero as you can imagine, really. <laughs> well, there you go. There's an exclusive. Never gonna, <laughs> it's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> and I suppose the final thing then to bring us up to date is the latest project that you're doing, which is the Commoners Choir, which is so you, it's so the ethos mm. of Chumbawamba. Well, the, the choir came about because I couldn't think of anything to do musically after the band other than I was writing for theatre a lot doing yeah. loads of theatre writing but I kind of missed the impetus of having to write about what's going on in the world and I couldn't think of a way of doing it and me and Phil Moody had a few discussions about it and in the end I just remember thinking you know I love Crass's all-out frenzied political attack on the system but I also love the fact that I was brought up listening to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with that kind of beautiful mm. soft harmonic grandness yeah. and I thought wouldn't it be great to put those two together and just wrote a quick manifesto saying this is what a choir could be and does, is anyone interested and said Let's have a meeting in Leeds and about 20 people turned up and we didn't have any songs. We didn't have anything. The only song we had was me singing Get Off Your Arse with a kind of harmonic stepping up progression <laughs> to try out. And that was the only reason was because I'd recently seen film of Johnny Rotten, their first Sex Pistols' first TV performance, where he walks on stage and the first things he says on national... No, no, it wasn't national TV, it was on Granada TV, which I saw, you know, in my living room in Burnley. The first thing he does, he walks up to the mic and just shouts, get off your ass!" <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, oh my goodness, my world is, is imploded. And so I just had this phrase and we sang it at the thing and we said, yeah, let's be a choir. Yeah. Let's all pitch in and let's see what we can do with this. You know, you talked earlier about the, the visceral mm. thrill of singing with other voices, a cappella. Yeah. It's just that. It's that physical thing of being with 70, 80 other people in a room and singing something that you're really passionate about, that you believe in. Just thinking, this is, this is wonderful. And you have been a part of causes and things. We did a thing about swearing, which was with Mark Thomas, the 
comedian. Oh, yeah, yeah. He played up in Salford at the, the Lowry. And he said, as part of his show, he was talking about the fact that the, the Salford Council had banned swearing in that area. Right. And and he, he did a big thing about it. You know, he talked for about 20 minutes about it, about which words are you not allowed to say? And he'd gone off and looked up swear words and found about sort of 320 and sent letters to the local council saying, we, could you tell me which ones of these are allowed and which ones aren't? And it was all this. Yeah. And he invited us to go along and be part of this. And so I wrote a song really quickly that was just made up of swear words. And the choir sang, he, he, instead of an encore, he said, right, I want the entire audience to come outside because outside we've got communist choir and they're going to teach you a song by the only words of swearing <laughs> which was great fun anyway it was like kind of saying yes we're here in Salford and we're swearing loads and that's funny <laughs> isn't it so it was that aspect of it but then the, the Daily Mail somebody filmed it and sent it to the Daily Mail and they put it on their website it's still up there actually it was like comedian introduces choir singing insults kind of thing <laughs> right. and then there's this dodgy film but the beauty of it is is they've bleeped out every swear word <laughs> so it's incredible it's like some kind of you know uh, some techno track with it just bleeps and tweets uh, all the way through beautiful uh, but that's the kind of thing we love in commoners it's like come yeah. on let's do something weird and of course like all of us we've not been able to go out and perform yeah. and that has inspired the project that I was very happy to do a very small part of my voice along with hundreds of other people in uh, the project Listen I kept hearing this all the stuff lots of different organisations and artists involved in this thing about how badly musicians have been treated during the, the pandemic and, and I really realised that I haven't I because I, I was been, I've been working with theatre and opera and all sorts so yeah. I was fine but I was thinking yeah of course a lot of people I know their living depends on going out and playing to people and mm. they've been stopped from doing it it's been really hard for a lot of people to get any kind of furlough or recompense from the government and then on top of it all the Brexit negotiations it was leaked that oh by the way we're going to make it nigh on impossible to just be able to go and tour in Europe as well for yeah. musicians it's horrible and so a few of us talked about it and, and we were aware that lots of artists were we're upset at this but we thought instead of doing a signing the petition or going on social media why don't we just write a song about it and invite yeah. lots of people to sing and of course everyone we invited said yeah yeah of course I'll sing on that and you know we really enjoyed doing it and we Caroline and Phil in the, the choir they, they made a film which was just an empty venue near where we live they went in and just filmed this kind of you know the empty chairs and, and coupled it with footage of people at concerts all over the world jumping up and down and clapping and singing it was kind of tear jerking seeing you know this this contrast between what this year has been for a lot of people and what it could be and what it will become. Listen. Once we sang Heroes by the Berlin Wall. Listen, listen, listen. Now we just wear flags in the Albert Hall. Listen, listen, listen. While the eternal boys sing the blues. Listen, listen, listen. Rule Britannia on fucked cousins. They drove their bus into town. Once we sang Heroes by the Berlin Wall. Promised us the world, then closed it down. Now we just wave flags in the Albert Hall. Same old algorithms going round. While the eternal boys sing the blues. No stage, no light. Rule Britannia on fucked kazoo.
the things we need to live Have we got the things we need to love Show me a place that you call home There are pictures on the walls and music We've got the things we need to live. The song they sing is a funeral song. Have we got the things we need to love? Show me a place that you call home. Pictures on the walls and music plays. Your son is showing musical yeah. signs of musical promise. And one yeah. thing I loved at the start of the first lockdown, I think it was, was yeah. his rap. Uh, yeah. So maybe we could have we could play out with a little bit if he doesn't mind. I mean, I don't want to. You know. Oh, he he would love it if I tell him. Oh, you know, David Eagle's thing. He's he played your song. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> tell us really a bit up. about this, the Ding Dong song. <laughs> he, he just because he's really into his rap. He's really into hip hop. He's only ten. Yeah. He's nearly eleven now. But he's he you know he's one of these kids that goes around like reciting Biggie Smalls lyrics and stuff right. like that. He just said, "Oh, I could do a rap about." Because we we got into saying, "Oh, don't go in that shop there." even with your mask and everything because there's ding-dongs in there and it meant <laughs> people who just went in without the mask and they were breathing everywhere and just right. didn't care about all this what was labeled is, is this a term that other people have used or is this kind of his no, own it was his own thing his own idea like, of a ding-dong <laughs> and even his sister they were like oh god yeah they went in town and there were these ding-dongs they were just yeah. you know and so he just wrote this rap and I said, oh, I'll put some backing to it. And, and then he filmed himself kind of, you know, doing the rap on the streets. Yeah. And, and he put it in for his um, his school. They had, a instead of having a, an annual talent competition, because they couldn't do it, obviously they weren't at school. So they had an online talent competition and he put the film in for that and, and he, he won. <laughs> so... He was so happy. Kids from his school saying, hey, you're the, you're the ding-dong kid. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's me. Oh, I mean, it, we could have yeah. done with another EMI or something picking it up. You know, the yeah, whole thing could have started over yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, surely Oipoloi would, you know, they, they can't get involved <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, I'd love it if they did it. Auntie Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> that would be brilliant. A, a rant against your 10-year-old son. Yeah, yeah. Johnny, oh, you're shit. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Bob, because I've kept Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was lovely talking to you, though. Oh, you too. And hopefully we can uh, meet up uh, when all the madness yeah. subsides. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, yeah. that'd be great. I love to go outside, but not in that way. We were told not to go out, I'll do it anyway. I went to say to you, a pocket full of money. Everybody said, I love to be funny. I don't have a mask and I'm all over the place. If I see you, I'll be up in your face. Annoying people everywhere, it's really, really fun. If you see me, then you should run, because I'm a ding dong. Guess what? Fortunately, all those rules don't apply to me. It's just that.
fresh for 2020, yo. <laughs> Still fresh in 2021, Johnny. Thank you very much to Boff. Wonderful to chat with him. Thank you very much to you for listening. And we're going to be back in a fortnight. I think that'll be Thursday the 13th of May. This is quite a long podcast, so I'm just going to let this one sit for a couple of weeks, I think, and give people the maximum chance to fully listen to it. But you've already done that. Well done, you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next The David Eagle Podcast. Bye.